all pray and uh, good to see you, Linda. Good to see you back, Levon. Yeah. You have good to see everyone. Well, I'll begin with prayer and we'll, we'll start. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you that we can come and study your word. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings and grace you give us. We pray that as we look into the scriptures that you would give us wisdom. I also pray, Lord, that this message would be heard by the young people who need to hear these things and they need to uh, live lives that are pleasing to you by not turning to the criminal element. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear ones, remember we are in the book of Proverbs here today. And remember, we're in this section where you have fatherly wisdom being given by Solomon to his children, to particularly his sons, so that they would not turn after evildoers. And one of the main applications has been, if you will live a life of wisdom, live a godly life, meaning you live a life that's pleasing to God, abiding by his revealed moral will, you can sleep easy at night, putting your head on the pillow with a clear conscience. And so that's where we left off here in Proverbs three twenty four through 26, where Solomon had written, he said, when you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. And so what we talked about is that one of the unique things of being a believer, I'll pull up my pointer here, is that when we lie down, we don't have to be afraid. We can have a clear conscience. Those who do evil, their conscience is not always clear. Now, that doesn't mean, as I talked about last time in Proverbs, you don't have some unbelievers who have what's called a seared conscience. You read about a seared conscience in 1 Timothy 4.2. The term for seared is actually the term in Greek that we get our term in English for cauterized. So to have a conscience that is seared means it's cauterized against what it should normally do. It doesn't function correctly. So remember, when we talk about the conscience within a human being, the sundesis in the Greek, the conscience has to be informed by something outside of itself. So the conscience itself is not infallible. It's like that inner referee that we all have determining what is good and what is evil. For the unregenerate who live in their unregeneracy and their conscience is informed by pagan doctrine rather than by the scriptures, their conscience is often seared. It's, uh, the term is actually cauterizo. It's cauterized. And so it doesn't function correctly. So why am I saying that? What I'm saying is that don't think that a conscience of the unregenerate can't be fooled. It can. But what Solomon is getting at is that those who have faith, those who live godly lives, can genuinely have a clear conscience as we lay down at night. Why? Because we know that we are not doing evil before the Lord. And so we can have this confidence before God. And that's why he says, notice in verse 26, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. The foot from being caught there, that's the idea of the snare. And remember, the unregenerate, particularly the young man this is being addressed to, they are prone to going after evildoers, following their ways, getting their money, not through working a job, but through robbing and stealing. Well, remember in the book of Proverbs, it says that their foot will be caught in a snare. The very activities that they do to get their financial gain, which is to rob people made in the image of God, will lead them to being caught in a snare. That's the idea. And so we don't have to worry about that. Why? Because we're living godly lives. Yes, Brian. So that's where we left off last time. When the... When the uh unbeliever has their conscience seared, Yes, it gets to the point where they believe what they're doing is righteous. Yes. Yeah. Amen. Amen. In fact, let's, uh, let's turn to that just to see this idea of the seared conscience. Turn your Bible to 1 Timothy 4, 2 through 3. We'll look at that. And 
I know I taught that book not too long ago, but let's remind ourselves what it means to have a seared conscience. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. 1 Timothy 4, 2 through 3. Notice it says, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Notice verse 3. It says, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Isn't it interesting? Those who have a seared conscience are those who are very strict in their quote-unquote religious observance. They forbid marriage, and they won't allow certain foods to be eaten. So ironically, a lot of Christians would look at people like this, and they say, wow, they're really pious. Paul doesn't think it's pious at all. He thinks it's because they have a seared conscience, a conscience that isn't informed by the scriptures, but rather the doctrines of demons. And so what's interesting is notice these men were forbidding marriage. Well, who does that in a formal religious sense? Well, the Roman Catholic Church does. They forbid marriage for a whole group of men that they don't know whether they have the gift of celibacy, as it were. Remember, Jesus says it's only for those that it's been given. This idea that they can be married, not, not be married their whole life, they can remain single. Well, the Roman Catholic Church presumes that on a whole group of men, they forbid their marriage. Think about abstaining from food which God has gratefully, excuse me, created and gratefully shared in by those who know the truth. Jesus in Mark 7, 19 declared all foods clean. So if someone is claiming to follow the Messiah and the Messiah has declared all foods clean, well, then you can't tell someone you can't eat that because that food isn't clean. <laughs> are, are you with me? I hate to point out the obvious, but that's the issue. So I know of several people in my own life where they began with Christ, and now all of a sudden when I'm in their presence, I'll have them at our cabin even, we have to be careful what kind of toppings we put on the pizza. Why? Because they want to go back and observe certain foods. Now, is that something that is to be commended? No. It's having a conscience that doesn't function correctly. When you have a conscience, the inner referee that says this is right and this is wrong, and it's not being informed by the scriptures, let's take the, the idea of food. Jesus declares all foods clean under the new covenant, Mark seven nineteen. Therefore, I can conclude... Because the lawgiver of the new covenant, God himself has declared all foods clean. I don't have to try to refrain from that. My conscience about right and wrong is informed by that. So I can eat bacon and put my head down at night and sleep with a clear conscience. Amen. But if I was harming someone, let's say I was stealing or robbing or not paying someone their wages that they were due. We'll talk about that in the next couple of slides. Well, then I know that I'm violating what the scriptures call me to do. Therefore, I would have a problem with my conscience. And so that's the idea of the conscience. That's how it functions. It's not a perfect guide. It has to be informed by something outside of itself. Yes, Paul. What this reminds me of is uh, the idea of fasting, mm. that abstaining from food, not necessarily that it was clean or unclean, just the idea of active fasting. And uh, that's what I want to share with yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. So fasting is something, it's an area of Christian liberty. If someone wants to fast, they can fast, but we're never commanded to fast. One example of that uh, where fasting is debated in the Bible is there's a passage in Mark 9 where Jesus says regarding the demons that the disciples had failed to cast out, he said these only come out by prayer. There are some later manuscripts, not the earliest ones, but later manuscripts that add fasting. So in the later manuscripts that came out, it says these only come out by prayer and fasting. Well, the original manuscripts that we have, in other words, the more recent ones, or I'm sorry, the, the earlier ones, they would only have prayer. Well, we had one day Dan Wallace, who is the expert in textual criticism. In fact, he has a whole ministry dedicated to copying the manuscripts that are still extant today so that they will always be with Christians. They're in a database. So this is the man that has more knowledge. He can tell you where they're torn on the edges of the actual manuscripts. I mean, he knows these very well. We asked him, what do you think the better reading is in Mark 9? Is it prayer and fasting or is it just prayer? 
And that's when he said, well, look at my waistline. What do you think I believe? <laughs> he was a fairly rotund fellow. He was, he was stocky, as you might say. Portly. Portly, thank you. Yes, yes, sturdy. And uh, he, he, he loved that. So anyway, we, we got a kick out of that. So yes, fasting is something that's not commanded. It's something that is an individual Christian's choice. It's an area of Christian liberty. Absolutely. Now, with that, let me move on to the next Eric, slide then. Yes, oh, just I'm sorry. Just a real quick one yeah, when you're on the topic of conscience. and Because yeah. I'm thinking of children, and it's kind of been something that's on my mind. But, um, you know, kids today, a couple years ago or a year ago, we saw... Uh, video clips of these tiny toddlers that were cussing out police on the street and and we see that these young kids and the exposure to grooming they're getting in school etc and you can't help but think of you know how this conscience is developing and becoming seared but I mean there's still hope for these children that you know their minds could be transformed by the word of God they're not like seared like pharaohs I'm just kind of trying to think this out Absolutely. It's a great example, Luann. Think about these poor kids. Instead of having their conscience informed by Romans 13, where the government's job is to restrain evil, and they are to do for us what is good, they do not bear the sword in vain. They're not being taught that. They're being taught that the police are part of a racist society because the Marxists want to break everybody down according to race, class, gender, to have their haves versus the have-nots and bring down a capitalist society. That's the goal. But, of course, these kids are being taught by the doctrines of Karl Marx rather than Christ. And so when your conscience is informed by Marx rather than Christ, then you start thinking like a Marxist and rather than like Christ. And that's exactly what we see in a lot of these young people today. They feel free to pillage cities at will because those cities have somehow wronged them in the eyes of the Marxists. And so their conscience is certainly seared. It doesn't function correctly anymore. They lay, I'm sure, their heads down at night and they sleep just fine thinking they are doing that which is good. I remember uh, Black Lives Matter, they murdered a black police officer named David Dorn. And I'm sure those who were in that group slept just fine at night thinking that they had done the world a great service. So yes, their conscience is seared and it matters who your teacher is. Are you going to follow Marx or are you going to follow Christ? Because whoever you follow, your great teacher, their doctrines will inform your conscience. Absolutely. So I think that's a very apropos um, analogy. So, yeah, very good. Anybody else on there? Uh, yes, Eric. Not to get off too far, you know, but um, I, listening to Luann, I thought about... Um, with our street evangelism, we have found when we go into Minneapolis, a lot of times it's the young black men that are the most receptive. Yes. And they will listen. And I'll never forget there was a guy that I talked to, and I actually was surprised that I even had started a conversation. The guy looked scary, big, tall guy with all kinds of tattoos and piercings. And I, I was just in a good mood, and I started talking to him. I asked him, you know, if he had any spiritual beliefs and stuff. And we ended up talking for quite a while, and I got out my Bible and uh, read, you know, had him read a little bit. Some of these people can't read very well. That's sad. Sure, yeah. But the Word of God will not return empty. And uh, But the thing is, I, I just think the Word of God has to go out to these people. Absolutely. And that that's, where the, that's where the solution is if there's going to be one. That's right. Um, I asked this young man. Uh, he, he didn't know his father. Uh, his, I think his mother was in prison. Basically, his grandmother raised him. I asked him about his friends and stuff, and they're all yeah. gangbangers types, you know, a yeah. lot of drugs and stuff. And, but he was open. So yes. there are, uh, we, really, there's, there's a mission field there. I Amen. Don't know, I don't know if absolutely. we'll ever, I don't know how we'll get in and penetrate it, but it's there. Yeah, absolutely. The gospel, can, if it saved the Apostle Paul, it can save anyone, right? It can, if it can save a wretch like me, it can save anyone. And that's the view that we have to have. But you can see how people's conscience are seared. It is changed by what doctrine they believe. And so the point in saying that is some people, they look at the conscience as something that's almost infallible. It is not. It's never depicted as that. The reason why some people think it's infallible is they look at Romans chapter 1, where Paul talks about the conscience into Romans 2. Paul is not depicting, the Apostle Paul is not ever depicting the conscience as infallible. It's not how he uses it, but it has to be informed by something outside of itself. So 
that's a key takeaway, I think, from the idea of conscience in 1 Timothy 4. But let's move on for the sake of time, and we'll move on to these uh, five do-nots. Now, I'm going to read to you a man named Dwayne Garrett. He actually wrote a Hebrew grammar that I used when I was back in seminary, and I think he makes a good point in this passage. Notice what he says here. He says, These verses have special significance for the conduct of the rich and of government officials, but they are of general nature enough that they can be they need not to be limited to a particular application. In other words, even though these passages that we're going to be reading here, this verse, it's really important for people who are in positions of authority, it really can be applied by all of us. Listen to what it says. It says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it. When you have it with you, do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you. Do not contend with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. Now, notice, first of all, in blue, it says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. That is very important for business owners, especially to not withhold wages that are due the worker. Why? Well, because the law of Moses, remember, uh, we have Solomon writing, who's under the old covenant, correct? Well, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Deuteronomy 24, 15, and you'll see why it's important for wages not to be withheld by someone who owns a business. Deuteronomy 24, 15. Please turn your Bibles there. And what you're going to see is that there is an element of fairness within the Mosaic Code where if someone works, they are deserving of their wages. In fact, that's carried over even to the Apostle Paul as he cites when he says a, wor- a worker is worthy of his wages when it comes to preaching the gospel. And he's talking about himself as an apostle. But here, notice in Deuteronomy 24:15, this is in the Mosaic Law. It says, you shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry out against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. So notice it's incumbent upon those who owned businesses to make sure that the men who are working for them or women, remember this is back in the day where work was primarily done by men, that they would be paid so that the Lord would not become angry if they couldn't afford their bills or to eat. That was the idea. And so that's the idea, I think, here, that we, if we are a business owner, are not to withhold the good to those whom it is due. Notice the phrase, it is due. They have done some work for it. But notice he also says, when it is in your power to do it, but he also says, do not say to your neighbor, go and come back tomorrow. I will give it when you actually have what they're asking. That's the idea of being generous. The scriptures constantly call believers to be generous. If I have something because the Lord owns it all, I'm willing to give it to someone else. You can use it. Why? Well, because the Lord has given it to me. I will give it to you. That's the idea. Now, notice in verse 29, here's the opposite idea. Do not devise harm against your neighbor. In other words, do good, don't withhold good, and don't do harm. The term devise there, karash means to plot. So don't plot or devise evil schemes against your neighbor. And in particular, I think here Solomon has in mind the evil schemes that criminals engage in. Now, why is he... Why does Solomon keep talking about criminal endeavor? And you might say, well, hey, I don't think we're at Gospel of Grace Fellowship prone to that. I I would agree. I'm not talking to a room full of would-be criminals if you didn't hear Solomon's words today. But the young generation is always tempted by... They can either go the way of their parents and work for a living, or they can go the way of the criminal element and get fast money in a dangerous lifestyle. And that was true in Solomon's day, and it's still true in our day. Kids need to hear this. And so this is written for our young men, but yet we can learn what the Lord loves and what kind of wisdom he has for us, even by words that are directed towards the young. So again, the young man needs to know that the rest of their lives, they are not to plot evil against their neighbor. Why? Because we're to love our neighbor. If the great commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our being and love our neighbors ourselves, we ought not to be plotting against them. That's the idea. And so in the Christian worldview, 
when we get up during the day, the day is designed to love God and love neighbor. That's the design of the whole day. And so our conscience is being developed through the scriptures around that principle. So what happens if you're around people who are godly, who have a conscience that's informed by the scripture, it shows. They're constantly wanting to do good for their neighbor, good for their family, good for their friends, good even for their enemies. They want to constantly, they're, they're not plotting evil schemes. Notice the unregenerate who don't have that kind of conscience informed by the scriptures. What do they do? Well, I'm not saying they always engage in the criminal enterprise, but they are far more tempted. And I don't think you'll find the, the prisons laced with people who had just come out of evangelical Bible studies. Let's put it that way, right? So that's who the unregenerate are. They are those who end up falling after the ways of the evil one in the world. Notice in verse 29 into 30 that in verse 29, we're not to devise harm or plot evil schemes against the neighbor. Then in verse 30, he says, do not contend with a man without a cause if he has done you no harm. Isn't it interesting? There's a conditional clause, if he has done you no harm. And I think that's there because there are times when you have to contend with the evildoer. But the idea is, as much as it depends upon us, we are to live peaceably with all men, as it says under the new covenant. That's the idea here. Sometimes you can't help but to have to contend with the evildoer. If the evildoer comes in and shoots up a restaurant, sorry, I'm going to have to contend with that. Are you with me? And so the point is, um, let me give you an illustration from my son's life. He goes to a public school some years ago. He's no longer there. But many years ago, he kept getting kicked in the shin while he was in line waiting for lunch. Well, he ended up socking the kid who did that, and he had to write a note saying, I will not fight back. Well, to me, the key issue was back. He was only six years old at the time, and I told the principal, I said, I don't think my son is a trained lawyer, so when you had him write this slip, the operative term for me was back. Because when he said, I will not fight back, what that meant is he was first attacked. And I said to the principal, I said, what matters is who started it. And he says, well, I don't think that that's important at all. I said, if you were viciously attacked in the parking lot as you go out to your car, all the police are concerned with is who started the attack. So if that's good enough for the adult, it's good enough for the child. The reason why Poland was moral and the Nazis were immoral is the Nazis started it. At the end of the day, who starts the fight is the aggressor, and the one who is doing that which is immoral. That's what we find in the scriptures over and over. And so you never see, for example, remember in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, when he says, turn the other cheek? Remember I said that is not about assault, but insult. Why? Because the cheek that is being struck that Jesus is referring to, the implication it's been struck by a backhand of the right hand, the hand of striking. Well, if you're being struck by the backhand, the implication is it's an insult, not an assault. That's the issue. And so the Bible doesn't prohibit people from protecting the innocent made in the image of God, but it does say that we ought not to be the people who stir trouble up. We ought to be those who are decent and loving and long-suffering with people that we don't contend with someone without cause if he has done us no harm. And so that's some of the wisdom that I think we should take from Solomon is that, yes, we are the ones who are never the instigators and who matters, excuse me, who starts it matters. Yes, Rich. Is that not indicative to the culture in which we live where the government says you can't defend yourself? Exactly. That, that you can have perpetrators that can come and run roughshod right over you and, and take whatever they want and you can't do a darn thing about it. Right, that is not a biblical notion. And one of the sad things, I think these social justice teachers have co-opted the turn-the-other-cheek passage. They have wrecked it, that they don't understand what the text is truly saying, that the passage is about insult, not assault. So Jesus isn't saying, well, hey, if the criminal assaults your daughter, we'll give him your son too. You know, that's the way the social justice teachers read it. That's not what Jesus is getting at. And it's very telling that the cheek that's been struck is the one that's been struck by a backhanded blow. 
by the right hand. And that's one of the key issues of that verse. Is it an assault that's at view or an insult? And here again, you see in the book of Proverbs, the language, notice the conditional language, if he has done you no harm, do not contend with a man without cause. So the idea is there are times because of cause that you will have to contend with them. Um, I, I praise God for you veterans here. You've had to contend with evildoers for cause many times in your lives. And that's the way it is with police officers. That's why they are ordained by God to restrain the evildoer. But again, for us, as much as it depends upon us, we're to live peaceably with all men. Now, here we come to this not following the criminal path. Notice he goes on to say in this last section, he says, do not envy a man of violence. Now, stop there for just a moment. The term envy there, kana, means desirous of or jealous of. So the youth, and again, this is why it's typically directed towards the youth, this passage, is they are the ones who can envy or be desirous of men of violence. Why? Because they see them get power, prestige, and wealth through immoral gain. The idea for us is we as followers of Christ, in this case in the book of Proverbs, those who follow Yahweh are never to be that way. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious are an abomination to the Lord, for, but he is intimate with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Verse 34, he says, Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. The wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. Notice here in verse 32, he says, For the devious, the term devious there, lutz in Hebrew means those who plot evil things. These are the plotters in life. These are the criminals who say, I'm going to hurt so-and-so to get such-and-such. I'm going to do this evil plot. They are the criminal element. And so they are the ones who are plotting that which is an abomination to the Lord. That's the implication here. But he who is intimate, it says, it says he is intimate with the upright. What does it mean to be intimate with the upright? The term intimate there is soth in Hebrew, and it, what it literally means is that God has a secret intimate relationship with the believer. Now, you might say, well, what in the world do you mean by secret? Well, turn your Bibles. I'll show you the, how it's used elsewhere. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 64, 2, because I want to talk about this idea of secret and show you how it should be understood and then not understood. Psalm 64, 2. Now, here, the psalmist is crying out for deliverance. He says, hide me. Notice Psalm 64, verse 2. It says, hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity. So notice that term for secret counsel, that's the same term, soth, for here, for intimate. So here, the Lord is actually intimate. He has a secret counsel with the upright. The idea there is not that we have a secret relationship with God in the sense that he reveals mysteries directly to us as if we are prophets, or somehow we become diviners who try to know the secret things that God has not revealed. Remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says that the things that the Lord has revealed belong to us and our children forever, but what the Lord has not revealed, he alone knows, right? That, that's not for anyone else. That's just for the Lord. It's for the Lord alone. Well, that's exactly the idea here, is the secret intimate knowledge that God has with his people is one that has not yet been disclosed to the world. So if you go out into the world and you wake up today, you will not know by looking at people as they're walking about who has a relationship with the Lord and who does not. That will be disclosed when the King of Kings comes. That's why, as Bob taught us in 1 Corinthians 4, we are to not make judgments before the time. Because when the Lord comes, he reveals the motives of men's hearts. He reveals the secret things. So the point is, right now, there is a whole kingdom of people that is the citizenry of the coming kingdom that's being built, and you don't know who they are and who they are not. You can't always tell. But that's the idea here, is those who do devious, devious things are plotting evil. They're abomination to the Lord, but those who trust in the Lord, they have this 
secret, intimate relationship with him that has not yet been disclosed to the world. When Jesus Christ returns, then it will be disclosed. It will be proven to all who belongs to the Lord and who does not. Now, notice here in verse 34, it says, regarding the Lord, it says, He scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. The scoffer there is the leets. And the last thing you want to be is the leets. You don't want to be a scoffer. The scoffer is the one who scoffs at the promises of God. They don't believe in the word of God. They scoff at what God has written. And what the text here is saying is that the Lord scoffs at them. Let me show you how important it is not to be a scoffer. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 28, 22. Isaiah 28, 22. And again, the leets, the scoffer is the person who scoffs, mocks, ridicules, the promises that we see in the scriptures given to us by God. So what's the connection between that and the criminal element as you're turning to Isaiah 28, 22? Well, the connection is if you scoff at the promises, you don't live for the coming kingdom, you try to get all you can here and now. And if you're going to live to get all you can here and now, you're going to be tempted to go after the man of violence. Notice up in verse 31, you'll envy them. Why? Because they get a lot here and now, or they can. So notice Isaiah 28, 22. Notice Isaiah says, And now do not carry on as scoffers, or your fetters will be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. So notice what's being referred to there is the future day of the Lord. The future day of the Lord is the time in which God will destroy the enemies of his who have been scoffing at his promises. But there is a time when their scoffing will be thrown down and the Lord will show that they were wrong. Uh, turn your Bibles to the New Testament. I'll show you again a passage that has to do with scoffing. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. By the way, as we read this passage, the enemies of Peter that he and the apostles were facing down in Asia Minor, they were the false teachers claiming that the apostles had the wrong interpretation of the Old Testament. Their claim was Jesus was not going to return to earth. Therefore, you can live any way you want. So Peter is having to prove then that indeed they had the correct interpretation. So here he's talking about these scoffers. He says, Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So the mockers in Peter's day were the same as they were in Solomon's day. That's what I want you to see, is that whether it's under the old covenant or the new covenant, the scoffers are those who mock the promises of God. They'll say to you as Christians, well, you believe that Jesus is coming? It's been 2,000 years. Do you know Peter handles that very objection? He says a 1,000 years is like a day to the Lord. You know, that's what he says. So the point is, these things will come, these promises. And so we can't follow and emulate those who don't believe it. That's the point here. Now, notice... In verse 35, we have antithetical parallelism. So that's, remember, synonymous parallelism is where you have a passage say the same thing in Hebrew poetry. But here it says two different things. The wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. So those who are not the mockers of God's promises, they are going to inherit honor. Why? Because they'll inherit a kingdom. Now, again, I think Solomon is focusing more on the here and now, but it does blend into eternity. But the fool, what do they dis They display dishonor. And I think here you have an inclusio. Notice this whole section ends with dishonor. Let me back all the way up so you see this. When you get to verse 13, you have the blessed. Blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. What's at the end of this section? The one who doesn't find it they're going to display dishonor. And I think that's like an inclusio of the whole section. You either find wisdom and you live a godly life, you have a clear conscience, you can lay your head down at night, and you have long life in an eternal kingdom, or 
You scoff at the promises. You live to get all you can here and now. You envy the man of violence, and you'll display dishonor. That's really the inclusio of this entire section. Yes? Would a mocker also be classified as a guy, or a woman, anybody, that says, oh, just red letters, or just, oh, you know, they poke holes in God's word any way they can, and just question things in God's absolutely, word? Absolutely, absolutely. There's um, somebody that I know that um, right now is attacking the Apostle Paul that I, I've known for many years, and they don't believe in the Apostle Paul. They don't think that he speaks for God. I think that's a form of mocking. Jesus selects the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus through a resurrection theophany where Jesus himself displays his glory to him and calls him objectively to be an apostle. And yet this person scoffs and says, I I don't think I'm going to listen to Paul. Uh, Jesus himself said, whoever receives you receives me. And so the mocking of Paul is the mocking of Christ. The rejection of Paul is the rejection of Christ. So absolutely, what we have to say is that from Genesis to Revelation, we are bound by the scriptures. Um, there was an old pastor who said, I believe this from Genesis to maps. <laughs> I always got a kick out of that, right? Yeah, the maps are always at the end. So the point is, is we're bound by the canon. And if someone who's going to mock and ridicule any part of it, they're really a, a mocker of God. Absolutely. Yeah, well said, Rich. Now, I want to move on. Does anybody else have anything? I've got a next section of Proverbs that we can get into, which is chapter 4. So let me pull that up. There's, oh, yeah, there's Will again. I can't believe how young he was there. I'll have to get an updated picture. Is that when he punched the guy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But, and so notice, ironically, right after that, a father's plea to uh, stay on the, the narrow path. And again, this is for children, but particularly sons, to listen to the wisdom of their father so they will not, con- they will not follow the way of the immoral. Now, what we're going to see in this section is the importance of hearing. And I want to talk about how hearing is used in both the Old and the New Testament because there's more to hearing than just hearing sound waves go through our eardrums in the scriptures. So I think right away, Deuteronomy 6.4, the famous Shema. By the way, I learned to say Shema. Um, it reminds me of, um, anybody ever see Star Trek? What's Captain Kirk? William Shatner. William Shatner was doing a, a radio ad one time, and he said, um, sabotage the system. And they say, cut, cut, cut. They say, it's sabotage, not sabotage. And he says, well, I say sabotage, and you say sabotage. And Well, I've never heard sabotage before, but I have to tell you that I've always rendered shema, shema. That's how I learned it in Hebrew. So if I say shema, you'll understand that I'm not trying to be hoity-toity, but that's how I understand the a proper pronunciation to be. The famous shema is found in Deuteronomy 6.4, where it says, Hear, shema, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Let's look at that real quick. Notice it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Notice the idea of hearing. Let me pull up my pointer. means not just to hear the sound go through your eardrums, but to hear with understanding. Number one, you understand. And number two, you believe. Those two are always associated with these calls to hear in the Old Testament. And so you are to understand and you are to believe in the uniqueness and the unity of God. That's the idea. And so notice it says, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God. Remember, this is Yahweh, all caps, the Lord is one. What made Yahweh unique in all of history is that he took a people and demonstrated his great power and saving prowess through the Exodus event. In fact, turn your Bibles to Exodus 15.11. I want you to see how the Exodus event showed that the Lord alone was God. That whether it was Marduk or Molech or Baal or Asherah or whatever false gods the pagans had, their gods weren't gods at all. There uniquely is one God, that's Yahweh. So turn your Bibles to Exodus 15, 11. Yes, Paul. You were saying that to um, 
our behavior from, comes from our doctrine. Yes. And I would think, uh, I would suggest that to hear something is very close to understanding, to doing. So to hear it is to believe it is to do it. Amen, amen, exactly right. So you're talking about the book of James that we looked at last week where we're not just to be hearers of the word but doers. Absolutely. And so that would carry the idea even further as to what saving faith looks like. But in the idea of hearing, the implication is the first step of faith, as it were, that you understand and that you believe. And then implied, of course, is that if you really believe, you act on it. So yes, uh, the hearing will eventually lead to, to the doing, right? But the hearing is focused on understanding and believing. So notice here in Exodus 15, 11, this is the great song of Moses. Notice the question, who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Stop there. What are the obvious answers to those rhetorical questions? There's none like him. He is unique. Now remember, Yahweh has a divine counsel. He uses all of the angelic beings for his purposes. But in, in sometimes they are called the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God. But merely because they are called that does not mean that ontologically in being that they have the same essence as God. In other words, he alone is eternal, they are not. So there is one eternal being who is omnipotent, creator of all things, that's Yahweh. And so, yes, he has this divine counsel, but they are all created beings that he uses to rule over his universe. That's, be, that's what's behind what I think Moses is saying here. I don't think he's necessarily talking about merely the gods of the pagans. I think he's probably talking about also the angelic realm the B'nai Elohim. There's none like Yahweh in his divine counsel. There's no other being in all of the universe that is eternal, non-contingent, the creator of all things. So that is the uniqueness of God. Notice it goes on to say, oh, I'm sorry, I want to go on to say this. Notice it says that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we see here not just his uniqueness, that he's not that he's obviously not like any other being. But we also see here that we have the unity of God. And what's very important there to the Israelites was they were involved with many of the pagan nations that had many deities. They had a plurality or a pantheon of gods. Well, the Israelites are to know that their Lord is one, that there's one God. Now, how does this relate to the Trinity? Well, in the Trinity, of course, we're saying that we have one God in three persons. If you deal with a Muslim, they will try to claim that that is a contradiction. It is not a contradiction. The law of non-contradiction says if A, then not non-A, at the same time and in the same relationship. Well, notice when we are saying that we have one God in three persons... We are not saying that we have one God and three gods at the same time in the same relationship. We are saying that we have one God revealed in three persons. Just as we have in the United States, I like the analogy that we have one government in three branches. The executive, the legislative, and the judicial. So would someone say, hey, Eric, you have one government, yet you have three branches, so you really have one government and three governments at the same time in the same relationship? No. Uh, think about an egg. You have one egg, it has the shell, it has the yolk, and it has the white. Do you have one egg and three eggs at the same time? No, you got one egg. You got one government, and you got one God. Don't put all your eggs in one <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Thank you. That's very good. Good wisdom. That's uh, very good. Yes, don't put all your eggs in one basket. So that's the point. It's not a contradiction. What the Lord was revealing here is that there's only one God. So what's the point of this? You are to hear, to understand, and to believe that there's none like Yahweh and that the God that you serve is one. It's not the plurality or the pantheon of the gods of the, your neighbors. Okay? Listen to this uh, Peter Craigie. I like when he said here, he's a scholar of the Old Testament. I said, quote, when he spoke... There was no other to contradict, that is, when God spoke. 
When he promised, there was no other to revoke the promise. When he warned, there was no other to provide refuge from that warning. He was not merely first among the gods as Baal in the Canaanite pantheon or Ammon-Re in Egypt or Marduk in Babylon. He was the one and only God, and as such, he was omnipotent. It was this all-powerful, unique God who imposed on Israel the charge to love him, thereby revealing another aspect of his character, namely love. Amen. That's well said. So that was Peter Craig, and I thought that was a good term. So again, here means to understand and to, to, to believe. Now here we're going to see it in Proverbs 4.1. Hear, O sons, the instruction of the Father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. Again, the idea here that Solomon would have is to understand and believe the words of your father. Now, all of you that have been parents, you'll know what this is like. You will say something to your kid, and you say, listen up now, hear ye, hear ye, you want to take this to the bank. I remember doing that with some students when I was a flight instructor, saying, now listen, you may not believe me now, but there's going to be a time when you're going to have a crosswind that's so strong you're going to have to add power to get enough rudder authority so that you can straighten the nose. Let's practice that now. Now, all that will never happen. I never fly in those conditions. And all of a sudden, months later, they come to you after they get their private pilot's license, and they said, you know, I'm glad we did that. I'm glad I listened to you. Um, So here's my point. All of us know, whether it's our kids or people at work, there's some wisdom that you conveyed to them that they didn't know that they needed to know, but they needed to know. Are you with me? That's the idea here. They need to understand and really believe what you're saying. Now, the term understanding here is very important because notice it's connected, as I said, to the term here. So it's really synonymous that you would understand and believe. That's what I wanted to show you. The understanding is part of of hearing. We're going to see it again in Proverbs 4.10. Hear my son and accept my sayings and the years of your life will be many. Notice the idea of accepting the sayings. That's the idea of believing Accept them. Trust me in what I'm saying. Don't just understand it to say, okay, Dad, I understand what you're saying, but I I don't think that's really apropos for my life. No, understand it and believe it. Now, let me show you how this works out because remember, in the book of Proverbs, there's ultimately only two ways. There is the way of the fool that goes to destruction and the way of the wise that goes to salvation. We see this idea in John 10, 27, where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Now, we can read that and we can say, oh yeah, they hear him. The sound goes through their earways, they hear what Jesus says, yep, and we can just read on. But no, it's laden with meaning. The idea of hearing means that they understand and they believe what Jesus says, therefore what? They're believers in Christ. Notice he says to them, I know them, or he says of them. Again, I talked about that last week. They're his elect. He knows them uniquely. He doesn't know the unelect, the reprobate, in the same way that he knows his elect. And notice they follow me. So again, hearing has to do with faith. Yes, Brian. Uh, When I was in Hebrew school for eight years, they would constantly have us do Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu, yeah. Adonai, Achad, before, in the middle, at the end mm. of every class yes. that you ever went to. So that was always pounded into the youth's yeah. head. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't actually hear God till I was about 30. I was just trying to get to my bar mitzvah so people didn't get <laughs> mad at me. Um, but the ironic thing is... Yeah. We still, Israel as a whole, they have not yet heard. Amen. Well said. That's right. So there's a remnant of Israelites, such as yourself. There's a remnant who believe. But one day in Romans 11, in mass, they will be brought to faith in the Messiah and they will hear. Um, as it says in Zechariah 12:10, they will look upon the one whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. By the way, the looking on the one whom they pierced is fulfilled partly in John, I think, 1937, as Jesus is on the cross, John cites that. But he doesn't finish the verse. Where he, he only cites the part where it says, they will look upon the one whom they pierced. 
and he stops there. He doesn't cite the rest of it where it says, and they mourn for one who mourns for an only child. It reminds me, as Bob has taught us, when Jesus in his hometown synagogue cites from Isaiah 61, he stops halfway through the verse as well. Why? Because the first part of it is about his first coming. The second part is about his second coming. That he was anointed to proclaim the good news to the poor, but then the rest of it is to put out vengeance upon the enemies of God. And so we see this oftentimes in the New Testament, but you're absolutely right. One day in Mass, Israel will be brought to hear the gospel. They'll and, and, understand and then they'll, they'll cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Exactly. Yep. Psalm 118.22. Exactly right. The Messianic Psalm. Right. Well said. So that will happen. Okay. So there's only two ways in the book of Proverbs. There's the way of the wise. And you'll see that in this section, the wise path. You will not stumble. If you're on the wise path, you'll be bright like the dawn. Verse 18. Proverbs 4, 25 through 27. If you're on the wise path, you won't turn to the left or right from it. You won't deviate from the path of salvation. But if you're on the fool's path, notice the only other way. If you're on the fool's path, you're on the path of evil and wickedness. If you're on the fool's path, according to verse 17, those that are on it drink wine of violence. And if you're on the fool's path, you'll end up stumbling. So if you're on the path to salvation, you live according to the word of God because you believe, you hear you understand and you believe, you'll be on a path in which you won't stumble. But if you won't listen, you won't hear, you won't understand and believe, you'll stumble. Now, why am I sharing that? I'm going to get into that in the the section we're in, in Proverbs chapter 4. But I want you to understand this proverb that has been so often misunderstood. It relates to the only being two ways. So notice what Proverbs 22.6 says. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I've heard this time and time again as an evangelical going to other churches before I'd come to this church. And the way it was always understood was that if we will train up a child in his natural bent or her, they will never depart it. They will find kind of their vocation and they'll live a successful life. But I think that that's a misreading of this passage. What's interesting is the Hebrew actually says, literally, train up a child in his way. It's actually a third-person pronominal suffix. So the best rendering of what you see in red there is it's literally in his way. So train up a child in his way, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Remember, in the book of Proverbs, there's only how many ways? Two. The way of the fool and the way of the wise. The wise are the elderly. The wise are those who know the scriptures, those who understand God's word. But the way of the fool is the way of the childish. So what this text is saying is not, hey, train up a child in their natural bent and they're going to be successful all the days of their life. What the text is telling you is you have to, if you train up a child in their natural way, literally in his way, the way of the fool, they're never going to leave it. They're going to go down the path of destruction. That's what the text is actually telling you. Why? Because the natural default position of every human being is to be born a dead sinner in Adam. That's the default position. Everyone is on the wide path to destruction. They're on the path that leads to the wrath of God. And so the wisdom that Solomon is giving us here is very profound. You have to break them off of that path, the young one, by what? By the word of God. Now, again, that's something only God can do. But we can put them in the position, at least, where they'll hear the word of God. And by God's grace, he will take them off the path of destruction and put them on the path of salvation. But it's important that we realize to train up a child in his way is not as the typical evangelical slogan, it's not a good thing. We want to break them out of that. That's how we are to understand it. And that ties in to the two different ways. So, I'm sorry, Susie, yes, back there. So just to um, recap, so many of us have been taught that that was a promise, but it is a warning. It's a warning. when we train them in their way, and we know the way of a child, and 
they just want to go play in the street and eat dirt and, you know, sometimes. <laughs> right. But that, or get body parts lopped off. So let's right. not listen to the child because we're, we're guaranteed if we let him in his way, he'll stick with that. Yeah, well right. said, exactly right. Um, very well said. Do you notice how, as our society has become more pagan, and I, I, I'm not ever saying that the ratio between believers and unbelievers, I think, is always the same. Narrow is the path that leads to salvation. Few find it. Wide is the path that leads to destruction. But there is an ethos in our nation that has changed. And as that ethos becomes more Marxist in its thinking, childlike thinking is elevated. Think about it. Who is it that wants to elevate so that the youngest can vote? If we think about it, the youngest can vote. Why? In the book of Isaiah, Israel was handed over to the leadership of the youth as a form of judgment. Who is it that elevates Greta Thunberg? The youth. The way of the child. The way of the tantrum. The way I can loot if you don't listen to me. I'll burn your car if you don't listen to me. Um, if I don't like what you say, I kick you out of college. Who's elevating that? Those who are the fool. Those who are on the path to destruction. And what's sad is, brothers and sisters, as you're persevering in this world, you see it very clearly. They don't. What they need is the gospel. Because look at Proverbs 22.6. So many of them were left in the way of the child. They never heard the scriptures. And if they went to a church, look at the churches out there. Look at the churches in the inner city. I never forget in Chicago, there's this Father Flager. The guy's a card-carrying communist. He doesn't create followers of Christ. He's creating followers of Karl Marx. And so, of course, they're never going to hear the way of the truth. That'll break them out of the child's way. That's where we come in. We're the ones who are equipped with the gospel upon our lips, the love in our hearts, and we can be the ones who get the gospel out to the unregenerate so that they can be broken off of that path, the path of the fool, and that they can find salvation. And so this passage, in some sense, we can use it as a, a call to evangelism. That Eric, that reminds me of Romans else. chapter 1, the downward spiral of the man. Yes. The final one is they are turned over to a debased mind, a mind that does not work. They worship and serve the creation rather than the creators forever praised. Amen. Well said. So with that, we'll, we'll get into Proverbs 4 then. Next time, we'll kind of finish that section. So what I'll try to do is from now on, I'll try to get through chapter by chapter. And um, by the way, I just want to say before I close in prayer, I did finish my first recording for the eschatology on my YouTube channel. My technology department, which is Will, has not yet downloaded it, but he will do that this week for me. So I just want to let you know, the first one will be out there, and I'll try to, I've got 14 of these messages already written, but I'll be trying to put them out once a week. So anyway, at um, some point this week, it'll be out on YouTube, and it's an introduction to eschatology, so people can understand the difference between amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism, all those types of things. So the introduction will be out there, uh, Lord willing, this week. So, yes? In his way, Oh, good, good uh, question, Tom. So in his way would be the way of the child. So um, this third person, masculine, singular, pronominal suffix, what it's saying is it's the way of the child. So that's what it is. It's the way of the child. It's his way. And so that's why when we read the Proverbs in context, we know it's not a good thing because the way of the child is the way of the fool, the childish things. Um, that's why it's so significant. So why we've been putting this gloss in our English versions where it's, you know, i, I got to put these on, in the way he should go. I, I, don't, I don't know why we're doing that. It should be literally in his way. So yes, good question, Tom. It's the way of the child, which is synonymous with the way of the fool, and therefore the way of destruction in Proverbs. So the idea is we've got to break him out of that. Yeah, very good question. So with that, let's, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the wisdom that you give us in the scriptures. And we do pray, Lord, for the young ones that we know in our lives, whether they be grandsons or just children of neighbors or friends or our own children. We pray, Lord, that they would heed your wisdom, that they would live according to your truths, that they would trust the gospel, Lord, and that they would be saved, that you would take them off the path of destruction 
and put them on the path of salvation, that narrow path. We pray, Heavenly Father, perhaps in this next week even, or in the months to follow, you give us opportunity where we can give the gospel to these kids, these young adults at times, that they may no longer live in the way of the fool. We pray that you'd regenerate hearts before us, and we pray that you give us boldness in your wisdom as we speak. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.